Scripture lesson this morning, Colossians chapter 3, beginning in verse 18 and reading through chapter 4 and verse 1. Wives, submit your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would direct us in your most holy word now, that the apostles' teaching would come powerfully to us, that your spirit would direct us in the truth, and indeed that you would further impress your word upon our hearts that it might bear fruit in our lives. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God made the world a certain way. He made the world to have a covenantal fabric to it, reflecting the relationship that exists between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And in the garden, in Adam's rebellion, that fabric was torn The relational aspect of man's existence was marred by sin, and it took Jesus, the second Adam, to repair the breach, to mend the tear. Paul has alluded to this already in his letter to the Colossians when he refers to the reconciliation that Christ achieved back in chapter 1, and also in the doing away with distinctions that no longer matter on account of the gospel, on account of the peace that Christ's work on the cross achieved, the life of the kingdom of heaven to which believers are now called, according to Paul, in chapter 3. And as we've made our way through the first 17 verses of this chapter, we've noted that the life from, what the life from above entails, what is to be put to death, and what is to be put on among the body of believers. Paul details five virtues in verse 12, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. He then adds to that the need for bearing with one another, forgiving one another, and putting on love, which binds everything together. And more specifically, last week we considered how Paul encourages the Colossians to have the word of Christ, the gospel, dwell abundantly in their hearts, and that at the center of Christian living is the corporate worship of God's people, with a particular emphasis upon the Psalms as necessary for our continuing maturity in the faith. Of course, gratitude continues as a key theme for Paul in this chapter. But now we find Paul more specifically applying the principles he established earlier and bringing them to bear upon the family and the workplace. We should probably understand chapter 3, verse 18 through chapter 4 and verse 1 as constituting a pericope, a section that stands upon its own. But as has become our custom in studying this letter, we're going to cover a smaller section today and simply examine verses 18 to 21. There's plenty here to consider. And while the principles that are set before us may not be particularly new, I trust that it will still be beneficial for us to give consideration to what God's Word has to say about family dynamics, about the relationships 
connected to this foundational unit of society. Family was important in the ancient world. Aristotle held it to be the basic unit of the state. And although women and children were not viewed as highly as they are today, uh, especially in the Christianized West, nevertheless, it was a valued institution. Of course, this was especially the case for Israel and the family ties and bloodlines that were connected to God's promises. But the Roman world also placed ample value upon the family. Certainly in our circles, the family is promoted and supported, and rightly so though there have been some who would place above the church in certain ways that are inappropriate and unbiblical. But immediately we do well to consider the obvious point that Paul addresses the various members of the family directly, and he does so with authority. In fact, the instructions that he gives to each group of people are imperatives, they're commands. And from his position of apostolic authority, he's telling wives, husbands, children, and fathers how they must conduct themselves, what it means for them to put on the life from above in the context of the family. To note another obvious point, perhaps, the virtues Paul addresses early in the chapter find an immediate context for application in the relationships that exist within the confines of the home. Now, who, who should be the first to receive your demonstrations of kindness and patience but those who live with you in the same domicile? Where else but in the home do you have an immediate opportunity to display a compassionate heart or a humble and meek demeanor? The new life that's to be put on, a life of enduring with others, forgiveness and love, doesn't just apply to your relationships among your church family, but it's most certainly to be put into practice with the neighbors that live closest to you, the ones that live under the same roof or share the bed, same bedroom with you or even the same bed. You know, don't forget chapter 3, verses 1 through 17 when you come to verse 18 and following. For that matter, keep in, mind, keep in the back of your mind the whole context of what Paul has been saying, particularly as found in chapter 1, verses 15 to 20 in his hymn that we've come back to again and again. As, as the apostle continues to apply the principles of the theology that he's established. Those standards now get a more intense focus. But also note that, also note what may be another obvious point, that Paul's speaking to the family in this regard indicates that the family needs repairing, that it, it too comes under the redeeming and reconciling work of Christ. And now Paul is telling these Colossian believers what heavenly families, what families from above look like. Chapter 3, verses 18 to 21 are, are another instance of seeking the things that are above. A further demonstration of the ethic that comes from heaven, the evidences that, that evidences the kingdom of Christ. And as ever, Paul's instruction to the Colossians speaks directly into our experience so let's consider in more detail what he has to say. The first command comes in verse 18, directed to the wives. The ladies get to go first. Wives, submit to husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, we might wonder why Paul begins with the wives and not the husbands, and that's a fair question. We may not be able to answer with exact precision, but notice what Paul does throughout this section. In the three pairs of relationships he notes, he addresses the person in the subordinate position first. Wives before husbands, children before fathers, slaves before masters. 
Another reason that we can posit as to why wives are first is because they are the bride in marriage. And as Paul is speaking to the church, so he speaks to the brides first. In the analogy of the church's bride, that means we are all wives as the church, including men, which is a little bit strange to think about, but true enough. Men have a dual role of sorts. We are not only bride, but also represent Christ in some respects. But, but since women are the primary representation of the church, Paul speaks to the wives first. And notice that Paul speaks to wives directly and not just through their husbands, which needs to be recognized since some circles take principles of headship too far. Yes, in marriage the two become one flesh, but that doesn't mean the wife ceases to be a person, a baptized Christian, who can and should be spoken to directly as is fitting. Now, a principle that we've considered before, but do well to refresh in our thinking, is that the scriptures often speak to our weaknesses, meaning that the wife's greatest challenges Greatest challenge is not in relation to loving her husband, but in submitting to him. So it's good that a wife is aware that her sinful tendency is not to submit or not want to submit to her husband. And what does Paul instruct? That your submission to your husband is fitting, is proper, is right in the Lord. And here's Paul's first use of uh, first of seven uses of the word Lord in 3.18 to 4.1. In your English translations, the seventh one is hidden in 4.1 behind the word Master. Now, in the Lord or in Christ has been a significant theme already in Paul's letter, and it carries quite a bit of theological freight. And as Jesus has reconciled all things on earth and in the heavens, then that means that he's righted the order of, for relationships between a husband and a wife. A wife's heavenly duties, her living according to the ethics from above, involves submission. Subjection to putting herself under her husband. This is the proper way. Wives, you are to recognize your husband's authority and yield to it. That's what submission means. And yielding can be very hard to do sometimes, can it? But here is arguably the primary arena where your faith is practiced or even tested. Do you subject yourself to your husband's authority even in those times when he's mistaken or wrong? Are you able to submit in those circumstances or do you actively protest and go against his decision? You know, submission is an act of faith. Do you believe God when he calls you to submit to your husbands in this fashion? Paul doesn't say submit to your husband only when you agree with his decision or when he sees things your way. If it's not sinful then submission is the path of your obedience to the Lord. Women, wives in particular, were created to respond. And so in keeping with that principle, submission is an act of response. Of course, as you know, that was made more difficult after the fall. But it's also for faith to recognize that Jesus has put things back in order. And so you must combat against the sinful tendency to want to rule your husband's life. Wives, when you submit to your husbands, you're demonstrating your allegiance to Jesus. Well, Paul's next two commands come to the husbands in verse 19. Husbands, love the wives and do not become embittered toward them. First of all, note that Paul's commands for husbands to love indicates that husbands are to initiate. In the Song of Songs, the two main characters are the lover, the man, and the beloved, the woman. Shockingly, the NIV uh, seems to be the English translation that best reflects this perspective. 
referring to the man as the lover. That conveys action. Why are men to be the lovers? Why are they to initiate? Because that's a reflection of what Jesus did for his bride, the church. He took the lead in salvation. He came and gave himself up for his bride, demonstrating sacrificial love. Love that puts the need, the needs of others ahead of oneself. I'm guessing most of you know this already. I've heard it at least once before, but once before, but certainly the character of God's love is demonstrated in Christ's actions, particularly in his sacrificial death upon the cross. You know, recall what Paul similarly wrote to the Ephesians. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You know, th- that's what your love for your wife is supposed to look like. It's a self-giving love, even as Paul has alluded to at various points to the Colossians. Jesus initiated. He acted first. And so his bride responds. And likewise, husbands need to initiate. And understand that this is central to your calling as a husband. It isn't optional, but a matter of obedience to what Paul is commanding, to what Jesus is commanding. Paul isn't just speaking to men who like to naturally take charge. No, he's addressing all husbands. And to be the initiator in the relationship means that you have to be willing to take risks. Certainly it was risky, a risky thing that Jesus did for us. But you have to be willing to make decisions and then stick with them. And can you continue to keep in mind that the, what, do, what do the scriptures do often? Well, they speak to weaknesses. Because husbands, and this could be perhaps true of, of most men or all men, what's our natural or sinful tendency going to be? Self-preservation rather than self-sacrifice. As you may recall from the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis makes the insightful observation through screw tape that a woman views unselfishness as chiefly taking trouble for others. A man thinks of unselfishness as not giving trouble to others. And there's, there's probably a balance to these things. But you might think that you're helping your wife by staying out of the way, when in reality you need your, to assert yourself into a particular situation and help out uh, to just take the initiative. Husbands, put your wife's interests first and take action. As Elizabeth Elliot writes in The Shaping of uh, the Christian Family, in her chapter on sacrificial authority, doing the little things nobody thinks are fun, but which have to be done by somebody, opportunities for self-giving and sacrifice, all of them. A father must, must teach positive acts of thoughtfulness, such as doing obvious things without, without having to be asked. Love sees what ought to be done and does it. A father's thoughtfulness or thoughtlessness will be reproduced in his children. Our father's gentleness and respect for mother set the tone for us. No amount of talking penetrates as deeply as example. Husbands, what are you modeling in your lives? Is your faith venturing forth in self-sacrifice? Are you able to to quiet or combat the voices, trying to convince you that self-preservation comes first. Well, Paul has a second command for husbands in the next part of verse 19 when he says, do not become embittered toward them. I think the New King James is is better here uh, in its reading, reflecting the verb voice more accurately than does the ESV, which directs it toward the wives. The husbands are the 
are the ones receiving the action, we might say, and they're not to become embittered toward their wives. Embittered can carry the ideas of being angry, indignant, irritated, or exasperated. Uh, A word to which this one is related means to be pointed or sharp, such as arrows. One scholar notes that it's a characterization regularly attributed to a tyrannical overlordship. So putting these ideas together, what's Paul getting at here? Well, probably something like this. He's commanding husbands not to get sharp or irritated, not to get bitter toward their wives over some sense or feeling that they've been cheated of not having received what is regarded as their due. You know, maybe the husband thinks he should be getting more respect, and maybe he should be. But Paul still gives the order for the husband to not allow himself to be embittered in this fashion against his wife. It has to be guarded against. And if God's Word is telling us to guard against it, then it must be something that we as husbands have a tendency toward, doesn't it? Again, back to our principle that the Scriptures speak to our weaknesses. And if you're feeling embittered toward your wife, then it's going to spill out in your demeanor, in your interaction with her. And yet again, Paul's basically applying all that he said in verses 12 to 14. Those virtues get tested here. They they get to be put into practice. And if you're wondering how to tell if you're embittered, then ask yourself if you're having conversations or arguments in your head with your wife, something along the lines of her needing to spend more time in verse 18, and and how you're not receiving the kind of respect you really think you deserve, and that you're 100% sure that... That's the problem right now, and that's why you're so frustrated, because of what she's not doing. And in your head, you win the argument, and she comes to see it all so clearly from your perspective and thinks you're absolutely right. Well, if something like that is processing in your brain, well, you're likely bitter, and very likely you just need to stay put in verse 19 and focus on what Jesus would have you to do. Love your wife sacrificially, and the respect will come. See what needs to be done and just do it, and the respect will come. When you don't do these things, then your wife doesn't feel loved, and then it makes it harder for her to submit, and then you're in this constant cycle of thinking the other needs to go first, but you both need to obey Jesus and do what he says. You also may need to have some clarifying conversations with your spouse, confess sin and forgive one another. That's real life. Life and marriage, and Paul isn't saying you shouldn't do those things. But husbands, we're back to your job of initiating. You're in a superior position. And the primary way that you lead is through your love, guarding your heart and thoughts against this bitterness. And don't let it even take root. Otherwise, it will cause problems in your marriage. The instruction of the writer to the Hebrews certainly applies in the context of marriage. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it, many are defiled. At the slightest hint of bitterness in your heart and thinking, deal with it. Don't let it grow at all. Otherwise, it will spread and your children will be affected, your family will be impacted, and your marriage at home won't be a reflection of the gospel as it ought to be. Jesus isn't bitter toward his bride, and husbands, neither should you be toward yours. Well, that brings us to verse 20, where Paul addresses the third group of people and gives another command. Children, obey the parents in all things, for this is pleasing to the Lord. A point worth noting is that this letter is addressed to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, that children are included in that group, 
that they also have sanctuary access and are in Christ, which isn't insignificant. The term children indicates that there's a dependent relationship of some kind, and certainly for Paul to speak to children means that they would be able to have some understanding of what he's saying. What was the age limit, though, for children in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament? At what age did you go from child to adult? 20. When you turn 20, you were considered an adult. So Paul has in view children from newborn to 19. If you're 19 years old, you're still considered a child according to the Bible's reckoning. And while our society places adulthood at 18, we're probably better off sticking with the standard set by Scripture. But fundamentally, what is is obedience? Well, it's doing what you're told to do when you're told to do it. It's a simple command. And one that we teach our children, hopefully at a very young age. Obey. Do what you're told to do when you're told to do it. And without discussion. Especially teaching them this at the earliest of ages. I I told this about three years ago, but there's, there's a story of a railway signalman whose home was on the other side of the tracks where he worked at the signal box during the days of steam locomotives, which could reach speeds of about 100 miles per hour. On one occasion during the holidays, the railway man's seven-year-old son was bringing his father's lunch to him and crossing over the tracks as he came. His father noticed an unscheduled express train headed right for his son. Realizing he couldn't reach his son in time and that the boy would not clear the tracks, he barked out, Lie down flat where you are. The boy obeyed immediately. And the train shot through and right over him and kept on going and disappeared in the distance. A bit dazed and dusty, but otherwise unharmed, the boy got to his feet and finished walking over to his father. Now let's do a little thought experiment. What if the boy delayed his obedience? What if he decided to talk back and ask why he should lie down, demanding an explanation? He'd have been killed, splattered by the train. So children, how many times have you been hit by the train in the past week or maybe even this morning? And while there may be necessary qualifications about treating children differently as they grow older and such, I'm not going to make them this morning, wanting the weight of the apostles' words to just sit there and give you something to think about. Furthermore, notice the blanket statement that Paul makes about your obedience to your parents. In all things or in everything. That's fairly all-encompassing, isn't it? Of course, Paul isn't including obedience for things that are sinful. You know, if your parents are telling you to sin, then of course you, you don't obey. But otherwise, Paul is saying you need to. He's commanding your obedience to your parents. And children, understand that your obedience to your parents is the sphere, is the primary way in which you follow Christ. Your life as a young Christian is mainly worked out. Your faith is exercised, exercised first and foremost in your obedience to your parents. Similar to the wives in verse 18, whose submission to husbands is fitting in the Lord, so children are to obey their parents, which is pleasing to the Lord. Children, do you want to know what brings pleasure to the Lord, what's acceptable to Him? Your obedience to your parents. And that means that your obedience to your parents isn't simply a matter between you and them, but also between you and Jesus, between you and your Savior. To be able to please the Lord further denotes that you're in a relationship with Him, that you're in covenant with Him, which indeed you are by virtue of your baptism. 
So don't take your obedience lightly. Don't treat it as a small thing, even if you're older and making more of your own decisions and gaining more freedom. Embrace this life, this life as a child, a life full of blessing, and realize that if you want to grow in the Lord, if you want to mature, which you should, then obey your parents, submit to their authority, and do as they instruct. Now, what about children who are younger and need more training to obey? Well, then parents, more weight falls upon your shoulders um, to help them in their obedience in this sphere in which they are to follow Christ, even at a very young age. But once again, as we've already already mentioned, this, the scriptures speak to our weaknesses. And so for Paul to emphasize the obedience required of children means their inclination is not to obey. And children, you know this. Sometimes, maybe often, you don't want to do what you're told. You want to do what you want to do when you want to do it. But the life from above, the life you've been saved to live in the Lord Jesus is one of obedience to your parents. But parents also consider that with this wide field of authority, which Paul gives here in all things, that also means that you're especially accountable if you abuse that. Well, that brings us to verse 21, where Paul addresses another group, those who are superiors, those in authority, when he implores, fathers, do not provoke your children so that they may not become discouraged. Now, what the apostle says here needs to be taken seriously. It's, it's a weighty thing. Paul is commanding this of Christian fathers. So what are some ways that fathers can provoke or discourage their children? Well, in the first place, by setting before them either impossible standards or unclear or inconsistent standards. And the one, and the one you might be requiring of them more than the Lord himself does. You know, in your enthusiasm for righteousness, are you setting before them standards they can never meet? Do they always fall short in your estimation and so you're always expressing disappointment and failure with them? In the other, are you being capricious? Are you not being consistent? You know, you, you blow up over a little thing but hardly bat an eye about a bigger thing or you don't treat the same offense in the same way. Consistency is key and perhaps the most challenging aspect of parenting. And if you find that you've let some things go or that you've been inconsistent, then repent and make it right. Don't just shrug your shoulders and think, oh, well, I've been inconsistent to this point and the way to be consistent is to continue in my inconsistency. No, no, we wouldn't tolerate that. You know, we wouldn't tolerate that mentality with other shortcomings and vices and neither should we think it's acceptable in this vitally important sphere of training our children. Another way to discourage children is to be disinterested in them which is even easier in our day and age with all the constant distractions that are at hand or literally in our hands. You know, put the phone away and spend time with the living, breathing, walking, talking, laughing image of God that's right in front of you, whether they're little or big or somewhere in between. Fathers, you only get your children for a short time. So be there and be your best. Engage them and, and be engaged with them, taking real and genuine interest in what they're excited about or what they're doing. I think it's very easy for us as fathers and even as men to be thinking about something else that we need to do or what we may deem as more important and neglect the greater importance of spending time with our children and making that a priority. Let's not think that there are things related to our children that are beneath us somehow, thereby failing to demonstrate the humility that Paul has already commanded us to put on. 
God is involved with us. He stooped down to our level through His Son. And certainly we can go back to John 13 and see and, and the scene of Jesus washing the disciples' feet and see there a pattern for fatherhood, a willingness to serve. And of course, the same pattern applies to wives in relation, uh, husbands in relation to their wives. And what is Paul's command to fathers seeking to prevent? The children becoming discouraged or disheartened. The word can even more literally be rendered spiritless or dispirited. Now think about the context of Colossae and the early church in the Roman Empire and having to stand against Judaism for one and the paganism of the Roman Empire all around them as well. And, and the last thing that's needed is for Christian children to be discouraged about the faith, about whom they are in Christ. Of course, that's just as true today, isn't it? And it's always been the case in the church over the centuries. Dispirited children will likely be apathetic and morose. They won't care about the things that matter and will be sullen and gloomy in their disposition. And apart from what fathers already need to be wary of that can provoke their children, certainly cultivating thankfulness in the home and demonstrating a spirit of gratitude is formative for children to see and hear. Still more having a home where the word of Christ dwells richly and where there's singing and the pursuit of biblical wisdom. And these things don't happen by accident, but through intentional habits, the liturgies of life that we develop, recognizing the benefits they can produce. Of course, this doesn't mean that more is always better uh, and you need family worship that lasts 30 minutes or more or something like that. That's actually probably a good way to dispirit your children. You know, 10 to 15 minutes tops is plenty because you also know that you're going to be applying the principles of Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7, that you'll be talking about the things of the Lord and all the various aspects of life. And if you as the Father especially are governed by God's Word, that His standard is your rule for practice in life, then that needs to be demonstrated and inculcated in your family. Your life has structure and your home has structure. As C.S. Lewis astutely observed in his essay, The Sermon and the Lunch, if the home is to be a means of grace, it must be a place of rules. There cannot be a common life without a regula. The alternative to rule is not freedom, but the unconstitutional and often unconscious tyranny of the most selfish member. That most selfish member might be the father, it might be the mother, it might be a child, even one that's quite young who, ha- who isn't being trained to know that he or she is not the center of the universe. But if we're going to cultivate families according to the gospel, even as Paul details here to the Colossians, then we must be governed by that gospel in our own hearts and homes. The, the whole of Paul's letter to the Colossians has built up to this point of direct application to the family, to these commands about how wives and husbands and children and fathers are to conduct themselves according to the gospel. Well, there's, there's more that could be said, but we'll finish with a few closing thoughts. David Garland observes, how we live in our family says a great deal about our faith. Then he later notes, Christian wisdom and instruction are not always put to the test in times of suffering, which requires a heroic response, but in the everyday situation of life, like in the home. For most, that's where the test of virtue comes, isn't it? Living with those Christian neighbors that are under the same roof as you are. 
But to this high and hard adventure, wives, husbands, children, and fathers are called to rightly and newly pursue these covenant relationships that have been redeemed and reconciled by the Lord Jesus Christ. Every, fa- every member of the family is called, is commanded to demonstrate their faith in the Lord through the commands that Paul gives. So let us readily obey, further pursuing and putting on this life from above. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that your word tells us hard things. And may we have soft hearts to receive those hard things so that we might be all the more humble before you and all the more faithful in our witness, in the witness that we are to have to one another and before the world, a witness that is determined by your word. Indeed, Father, strengthen us by your spirit for these things, for who of us is able to do it in and of ourselves? We know that we cannot, and so grant us grace and humility to further pursue the life to which you would have us to live in Christ because of what he has done, what he has accomplished, and the new life we have in him. Encourage us to these ends, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.